Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The United States formally ended its participation in what it called the Vietnam War 50 years ago. Many are still living with legacies of this conflict, and one of the populations deeply affected by this devastating event were the women of many backgrounds who served militarily, had loved ones go to war, tended those affected by the direct participation in war, protested its impact, or otherwise attempted to make sense of the war's complex experiences and legacies. USU's Bringing, Home War, uh, Bringing War Home Project is presenting the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Tanner Symposium called Women and America's Vietnam War. That will be happening on Friday at the Eccles Conference Center on the USU campus in Logan. All are welcome to that. Attendance is free and open to the public. All sessions will be live-streamed on Zoom. Organizers do ask those interested in attending either in person or remotely to register in advance. We'll have that link up on our website, upr.org. Um, and uh, this event will feature talks from T. Bui, uh, author of the graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do, which examines her family's immigration to the U.S. following the war. Also, Vietnam veteran Susan O'Neill, author of Don't Mean Nothing, a collection of short stories set in Vietnam during the war. Uh, the second half of the program today will uh, feature a conversation with Susan O'Neill, Right now, we bring on another of the presenters, Kara uh, Dixon Vuick, author of Officer, Nurse, Woman, Army Nurse Corps in the Vietnam War. Kara um, Dixon Vuick is Lance Corporal Benjamin W. Schmidt, Professor of War, Conflict, and Society in 20th Century America at Texas Christian University. And um, she's author, uh, in addition to the book I referenced, uh, also. Uh, an award-winning history of the USO's, The Girls Next Door, bringing the home front to the front lines. She's currently working on history debates about drafting women into the military. She's one of the leading experts on the history of American women in and war, and on the Vietnam War in particular. So, Professor Vuick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Um, so I want to start with, uh, before we jump into the Vietnam War, um, and uh, in that period as well, um, how have women historically been involved with war, um, and, and did anything fundamentally change with the Vietnam War? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, women have been involved in every war that has ever occurred <laughs> throughout history, uh, and historians rarely use words like every, um, but I will in this case. Um, women have been involved in every war, and certainly America, every U.S. war. Um, traditionally and sort of conventionally, those that work was in the form of medical care, nursing, um, support work on the home front as we moved to the 20th century. Um, and by the Vietnam War era, things started to change um, and changed slowly for women, but they did fundamentally change. Um, that's the era of the women's movements and of profound legal changes for women's, women's lives, and those changes also impacted women in the military. Uh, so in your book, um, you, you you treat gender issues that arose when a male-dominated army actively recruited and employed services of some 5,000 nurses. Uh, in the midst of a growing feminist movement and a changing nursing profession, a lot there, but what uh, what are some of the mm -hmm. gender issues that, that arose uh, in, in the Vietnam War? Yeah, I mean, you have a generation of women who are essentially raised by their the their World War One era parents, right? And a lot of women in the World War One, sorry, World War Two era, learned that they had been appreciated and valued and necessary in that war effort. And when the war ended, 
much of the American public wanted those women to to leave factories and go home and sort of raise nuclear families in this new Cold War era. Those mothers raised daughters who grew up with different expectations and who grew up knowing that they could do whatever they wanted to do, um, even in a world that still limited women's choices. And so, for example, women like Sue, who you'll talk to this afternoon, you grew up in a world in which a lot of people said to them, you know, you can be a teacher, you could be a, a nurse, or you could be a secretary. And what I found where a lot of women chose nursing and chose military nursing in particular as a way to sort of have a profession that was acceptable at that time, but to use that profession, to use those experiences in the military and in the Vietnam War to go on and do something different with their lives. Um, a lot of women joined the nurse corps to fund their education, you know, for families who couldn't afford to send daughters to college or to nursing school, they could pay for that themselves by joining the Army Nurse Corps. And so a lot of these women are using uh, their military experience to go on and do new things that were beyond the bounds of what a lot of folks in prior generations would have said women just don't do. Um, Did the... uh... I was the military prepared for, for this? Of course, you know, we fought other wars, right? But uh, you're, right. you're going to recruit nurses. They're, they're, they're much needed. Um, but uh, we're, yeah. uh, did the military have plans for, for integrating and prepared for these women coming in? So not exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I laughed when you asked, was the military ready? Because I'm not sure the military is ever really ready for any war that happens. <laughs> um, and in this case, before even before they started to send ground troops to Vietnam, the Army declared that its greatest personnel crisis was nurses. Right? They could draft men, and they could draft as many men as they needed, but they did not draft women, and so they had to recruit them. They had to go find women who, in this era, you know, of increasing opportunities, and and as the time goes on, and a war that is increasingly controversial, they have to go and recruit those women and explain to them why they should join the army. Why should you, you know, join the army? Why should you go to Vietnam? And so, what the military finds is that because of that great need, those women have some power and they have some leverage in making demands on the military as an institution. You know, they could say, for example, as they are serving in Vietnam and they come home and they're continuing to work in army hospitals, they could say, I should not be kicked out if I want to have a child, right? I should be able to combine my career and my family in the same way that men who are officers can combine their families and their careers. And when those women start to make those demands, the institution has to listen. Um, And so it wasn't ready for that. (laughs) Um, It wasn't ready uh, when the war began to fully admit men as nurses in the nurse corps. Um, But in large part because they needed so many nurses for the Vietnam War, the military had to had to sort of uh, expand its its understanding of what nurses did and who they could be. So uh, the nurses weren't on the front lines, obviously, but they were potentially in harm's way. Were there casualties? Absolutely, yeah. There were. There were. um, I mean, they're not in the—nurses were not in the front lines in the sense that they are not out in the field. Um, But the joke among people who worked in hospitals was that those big red red crosses on the top made good targets. 
Um, and so you have a lot of young people, right? These are women in their, and men in their early 20s for the most part um, who are in hospitals that are, you know, they're not rocketed uh, in a direct sense, but they're, they're in areas where there are lots of rockets, there are fragmentation, you know, there are all sorts of things. Um, there was one hospital that did take a direct attack and a nurse was killed instantly um, in, at the three, 312th, I believe. Sue, Sue may correct me later. Um, but there were nurses who were killed. Um, sometimes those are helicopter accidents, um, nurses being sent from one hospital to another. Sometimes it's illness um, or disease or whatever. Uh, which always, uh, at least since World War One, has killed more people than direct combat. Um, so they're not on the front lines. Uh, are they in danger? Absolutely. Um, you know, do they die in the war? Yes. I want to uh, quote you from a, uh, another interview you gave, um, talking about the women who were serving uh, in Vietnam. They were joining an organization that was built for men. The military was constructed mm-hmm. around men's bodies, men's needs, around social and cultural ideas of what men do. So talk a little bit about uh, this, uh, is this cultural conflict or, you know, how are, how yeah. are women coming into the, this uh, uh, world built for men? Yeah, I mean, the military, you know, when we talk about women in the military, often the conversation is about women integrating into this institution. And I think sometimes we forget that everything about that institution was built deliberately for men. Um, the uniforms, the boots, the helmets, the body armor, all of those things are designed for men's bodies. Um, it's not a default sort of uniform, <laughs> you know, sexless thing that these things are designed for. And so when women come in, they have, you know, and again, none of these things should have been surprises. There have been nurses in, in wars and in the military for decades. Um, but you have, you know, basic issues like what kinds of uniforms are we going to issue to them? What um, what weight of fabric do we need? Um, you also have more um, fundamental issues about, you know, uh, can women marry while they're in service? Can they have children while they're in service? Can they, do we need to continue to kick them out for those things? Um, what sorts of medical care do women need that we haven't thought about that that men don't? Um, you know, how are women going to access the kinds of medical care they might need while stationed in Vietnam? Those kinds of questions didn't didn't necessarily come first to the minds of Army officials who were used to thinking about combat troops or support troops or what are the men going to do on Long Bend Post. These were new kinds of questions. Um, and so it took the military, um, it t- actually it took a lot of the women's officers pushing these issues and trying to convince um, an institutional leadership that hadn't really thought about women um, in a concerted way for a long time. I was reading a couple of the, the histories in your book, Officer, Nurse, Woman, Army Nurse Corps in uh, the Vietnam War. Um, I believe you conducted uh, many, many interviews uh, for this, right? Um, yeah. One particular, I can't, I can't remember her name. She was an Army nurse, uh, or, or a nurse anyway, over there. Mm-hmm. Um, she talked about the, uh, the, uh, the sexual expectations, the, the pressures, uh, fears. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said she specifically wanted this uh, post uh, near the sea. She was raised on the ocean. She wanted to go swimming. She only went mm-hmm. once because she didn't. She felt nervous getting into a bathing suit with so many men staring at her. Uh, she was she she 
get the night shift because she didn't even want to sleep in her bunk at night uh, with, with, with those potential dangers out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's Kate Palmer. Um, she's the introduction to the book, and she is um, such an amazing woman. Um, yeah, I mean, Kate's story, she she kind of embodies a lot of the fears and the, the experiences that a lot of these women had. I mean, and she's very typical in that she's she was young when she went and when she went into the army and went to Vietnam, she had not traveled far from home. She was not, you know, she had not had many worldly experiences. And her first experience is all of these men, right? You're just surrounded by men who look to these young nurses, partly for friendship, partly for comfort, partly as maternal figures, partly as potential romantic partners or sexual partners, you know, and a lot of men who think those women shouldn't be there at all and are angry about that. And so you're throwing these very young women into these situations where they're trying to figure it all out and they're trying to protect themselves. And by and large, they have to figure out how to police those boundaries um, and how to protect themselves. You know, I mean, women like Kate, go into nursing in part because they are very caring people and they want to help and they find these these young men often younger than themselves even who have been through these horrid experiences and are suffering physical wounds and they really truly want to care for them but how do you how do you figure out all of this when you're 24 and you're halfway around the world and you're just coming into your own early adulthood and you're trying to figure out who you are and what you're interested in. And it's just a, it is just a mess of all kinds of things that, you know, people are thrown into and they have to figure out the best they can. And a lot of those people figure those things out. And there are also some pretty horrible stories that come out of that, um, just as we might imagine. Uh, Kate Palmer again, um, you say she was uh, her tour is fourteen months long, uh, but mm-hmm. her tour in Vietnam profoundly affected her life and beliefs. One thing she says: "I never got a chance to be a girl." Um, yeah. So some, you know, maiming, dying, uh, amputations, uh, you know, just, just horrible. Uh, you know, men bleeding to death uh, in the in those hospitals. Um, what uh, what did uh, the women tell you about how that that experience changed them for the rest of their lives? Yeah, I will never forget sitting in a Marine Corps club in San Francisco, listening to Kate talk about those stories and talking about those men. Um, and and particularly, you know, most nurses will have one uh, story that really stuck out to them. Um, and Kate's was about this man who she knew was going to die, and all the medical staff knew he wasn't going to make it. And he asked her directly, if he was going to die. And she told him he wasn't, that he would be fine. And she knew she was lying and she knew it was the best she could do. And she sat in that room and, and just cried. And it was like, it was yesterday that it had happened. So I think you, you know, you see these women and these, these, you know, any of these medical staff, they're just doing um, profound work, um, not just in the work of medicine, but in the work of caring for other human beings and those kinds of things stick with them, and they have to live with them. Um, you know, Kate went on, and um, she said that, you know, she really wrestled with sort of this contradiction between how much medicine had advanced at that point um, 
versus the quality of life that someone might have um, on the other side of their of the war. You know, someone might come in and they could be saved, but they might be saved because they've lost two legs and an arm. And she asked, is that worth it? And even decades later, she still didn't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could see, you know, that that haunted her. Um, and I think it's haunted a lot of, you know, again, very young people who have to make those decisions. Um, you know, they're they're being asked to triage. Who decides, you know, who goes in for treatment first and who can wait and who might in other circumstances be saved, but there's not enough time. Um, it's young people making those decisions. And so, you know, this this work asked a whole lot of very young people um, and asked them to deal with that and live with that for the rest of their lives. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with Professor uh, Kara Dixon Buick, um, who is the Lance Corporal Benjamin W. Schmidt Professor of War, Conflict, and Society in 20th, 20th Century America at Texas Christian University. Author, among other books, uh, Officer, Nurse, Woman, the Army Nurse Corps in the Vietnam War. She'll be presenting at a symposium uh, happening on the USU campus. It's a tenor symposium. It's called Women in America's Vietnam War. That's on Friday at the Eccles Conference Center on the USU campus, free and open to the public. Organizers do ask that you register in advance. You can either attend in person or remotely. And we'll have the link so you can register on our website, upr.org, a little later on. So, uh, Kara Dixon, if you want to talk about uh, the, the reality of uh, sexual assault in the military, uh, this is some progress being made. What, uh, but I think you you could you could say the Vietnam War was maybe in the before versus the after, right? What what was the situation there? That in some cases, well, I, I think, and you can talk about this. Uh, you had to report this, right? You required to report this to your uh, the next officer up, and if he was the one who committed the assault, uh, that you're you're stuck. Yeah, yeah, that's still a problem the military is dealing with today. Um, you know, in the Vietnam War era, it was interesting to, trying to talk to these women about this issue. Um, in this era, the very phrase "sexual assault" did not exist in our vocabulary. Right. There were other ways of talking about it, but that phrase itself was was not yet around. Um, and so these women, you know, had other ways of, of understanding it, um, of the constant attention, you know, in addition to, you know, unwanted touching, unwanted contact, and, and even assault. Um, and there, you know, I, it's the hardest thing in doing work on women um, in the military is is writing about this, at least in my experience, because you seldom find someone who will talk directly about their own experiences, but they're more comfortable sharing the experiences of others or things that they've heard. Um, the one case that I did find records of in the National Archives um, of a woman who was assaulted in a hospital, the commander brought her and the man who assaulted her into his office and told them to work it out. And so on the scale of bad to worse, that's pretty, it's a pretty terrible way of dealing with it. Um, so in some ways, you know, I think the military has come, uh, you know, a remarkable distance from that, um, though there are fundamental problems that you just mentioned with chain of command and, and all of these issues. Um, and then and in just how people think about assault, um, I think they're still lingering ideas that assault is about 
sexuality or sexual attraction. And I think most of the research that's out there would tell us that it's it's not about attraction. It's about power, and it's about um, exerting power to tell certain groups of people who belongs and who doesn't. Um, And so I think it's the fundamental thing that the military is going to have to continue to deal with um, particularly in today's era where you know the Army in particular has a recruiting crisis and relies on women in greater numbers than it ever has, um, and surveys are showing that young women are not entering the military because they fear they will be assaulted. Um, I would love to see the day where the military decides that those people who assault and harass other human beings are not wanted in the military, period, um, that those are not the people who should wear our flag and represent our nation, um, but I think we still have a ways to get there. Just have a couple of minutes in this uh, half the program uh, with uh, Kara Dixon Buick. Um, so, Professor, I, want, I wanted to uh, spend those a couple of minutes talking, looking to the future. You've uh, you've written uh, and have been studying uh, this idea of including women in the draft. Uh, where are mm-hmm. we with that? It's 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 controversial. It's uh, contentious in some circles. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's still one of the most controversial and contentious issues in American politics today, even though it is not um, on the radar of most people. Um, So what I'm trying to do in this book is look at the debates that we've had throughout American history. Um, And there have been lots of them and lots of discussions about what the state, you know, what the United States can do to compel women in wartime. And there have been lots of debates. Um, about that. In World War II, we very nearly drafted nurses because of a shortage at the end of the war. Um, And the ERA in 1972 sort of moved a lot of these arguments forward. But right now, the situation is that women still do not register for selective service. We do not have a draft, to be very clear. (laughs) Um, We have selective service registration. Um, Women do not register. And it's the only difference between the obligations of men and women as citizens in this country. Um, It has come up several times in the last few years um, with the Defense Authorization Acts. Um, It's almost been included, and at the last minute, it's kind of been uh, political football traded away um, in all sorts of congressional uh, wrangling. But right now, that's kind of where it is. It comes up periodically um, with, with authorization acts. Um, the Department of Defense has said since 2013 that they they believe women should register. Um, so it's you know it's it will be interesting to see what happens. Um, I think you know need often often leads to change, and so um, if there is a need for women in whatever capacity, I think eventually the United States will get there. Um, but it's just a matter of how and when. Well, much more to say, and uh, you'll be saying some of it, of course, at the symposium. Um, we've been talking this part of the program with Kara Dixon-Buick, uh, who is Lance Corporal Benjamin W. Schmidt, Professor of War, Conflict, and Society in 20th Century America at Texas Christian University. Uh, she'll be presenting at the Tanner Symposium. Uh, it's Women in America's Vietnam War. That'll be happening on Friday at the Eccles Conference Center on the USU campus in Logan. You can attend in person or remotely. Organizers just ask that you register in advance, and uh, we'll have a link to do that on our website, upr.org, a little bit later. Uh, Karen Dixon, uh, uh, Buick, thanks for, uh, so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Tom. 
Thank you. And uh, following a break, we'll be uh, talking with uh, Susan O'Neill, a Vietnam veteran. She served uh, to her 6970 in Vietnam. Uh, more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams, uh, the USU's Bringing War Home Project is presenting a USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Tanner Symposium. It's uh, titled Women and America's Vietnam War, and it's happening on Friday at the Eccles Conference Center on the USU campus in uh, Logan. All are welcome, and you can attend in person or remotely. Uh, you just need to register in advance, and we'll have uh, that link to register uh, on our website, upr.org, uh, shortly. So in the second half of the program, we present a portion of my interview that I recorded yesterday with Susan O'Neill. She's a Vietnam veteran. She served uh, as an Army nurse, uh, did a tour, I think, of a year and a month, uh, starting in May of 1969 in Vietnam. Her uh, book, Don't Be Nothing, is uh, a collection of short stories set in Vietnam during the war. And uh, here is a portion of of my interview with Susan O'Neill. So May of 1969, you you arrive, first assignment, 22nd Surgical Hospital, uh, and then you were at uh, two other hospitals as you went along. What, um, you were operating room nurse, obviously. Um, first of all, tell me what the work was like. How, what was it like working uh, in, you know, in, in the war zone, but uh, in an operating room? Well, it was different in all three hospitals. The first one that I went to was a, a tiny little hospital that was, believe it or not, inflatable, um, which in a war zone is not exactly the best idea because there's a lot of sharp stuff flying around. <laughs> and at one point, it was, you know, one of the units was deflated and it kind of sat there on its little metal rims. But anyway, yeah, so um, that was a small hospital and it was one of two in the region in Fubai, which is close by Hue, which is the old provincial capital. And that was, um, as a surgical hospital, they don't tend to keep people there very long. They evac them out to wherever they need to go. But we, we were a first stop. Both hospitals there were, were pretty busy, and ours was definitely busy. And um, it was literally, well, the first... What Ballantine Books had as the first uh, story in my uh, my fiction, little fiction collection, collection, is the only one that's absolutely true, except the names were changed and the characters were reversed. I mean, I was the one who went through the uh, the trauma of it while I was orienting. Um, uh, we we got a uh, a young man in, and I. I titled him the boy from Montana, but he could have been from um, almost anywhere out west because I hadn't been there except for Fort Sam. But uh, I remember him as Montana. Um, but at any rate, he came in and we had a brief conversation before he went to the operating room. And he, he looked basically okay. I saw his wound was a very small wound in, in his chest. And when he got in there... Um, they, the doctors were trying to position him and to, to check out the damage. And immediately, you know, he, he was, you know, 
kind of asleep by then. And immediately they brought in anesthesia and they kind of bumped me over and said, you know, you can't, don't even have time to prep this guy because he's been shot and he's been shot by one of those, um, you know, the, the weapons <laughs> that we see now in the schools, unfortunately, that goes in as a fairly clean shot and expands when it's in there and then blows out the back. And it's, the guy was severely damaged and they thought his heart was involved because he, his vital signs were going to hell. So they, uh, they took him into surgery and I spent my time because I was just orienting, basically pumping blood into his veins. Um, we had, bags on all four sides, all four limbs of him, and uh, were, you know, pumping it like crazy into him. And and we had a young man who was there who probably should never have been there, who was uh, our, he was slated as an operating room tech, but why, I have no idea. And he was frightened when we stuck his hand around uh, a tube to you know, to squeeze to make the blood go in faster. They look like blood pressure cuffs. And um, he did that. He he was squeezing, but he was kind of doing it automatically. And his, his eyes were huge behind his mask. And he was, he was a mess. And in the meantime, the doctors were trying to save this guy, but it was just totally hopeless. His, his heart was shredded. And every time they tried to uh, put a stitch in, it just kind of didn't work. And, and it was, it was heartbreaking, really, but in the middle of it all, this kid whose name I changed, but I still remember, um, kept squeezing and squeezing, and he was doing it. He was a pretty muscular kid, and he squeezed so hard that he broke the blood bag, and it splattered everywhere, and it's like it kind of got everybody, you know, just the explosion of it was crazy, and, and it was blood was spackled all over the the, the room, and... Um, they're fairly small rooms, you know, so everywhere. And uh, the doctors at that point gave up because they just, you know, it was like it brought them to reality. They weren't going to save this kid. And we probably used, I don't know, 25 blood bags on this kid. And to no advance, to no use, because it just all dripped out up where the surgeons were working. And ultimately they rolled him out. And they took the kid who had broken the blood bag and kind of rolled him out, you know. And I never saw him after that. Uh, even the clerks didn't know where they sent him. But I think he had a, a mental health issue. Um, but at any rate, that just kind of, you know, it was a horrific way to start. And what stuck in my mind is I had talked to this kid first, and he had talked to me, and I knew that he was and his family knew nothing about it. They just kind of were going about their business out west and and had no clue that their son was gone and that, you know, we had worked so hard on him, but it was hopeless. So anyway, so that was that was my introduction to it, basically, to the operating room. But after that, it was a little more um, standard. And what we did was a lot of, um, of work, the auxiliary staff, be it the nurses or the techs, once the uh, doctors were operating on something major, 
that might involve going into the patient's belly or whatever, uh, we would be left to do the minor things if it were something like a, um, a, a mine explosion or something like that because that throws fragments everywhere. So one of the docs called it, actually it was a, a guy who was a, uh, a plastic surgeon who made neat little, neat little uh, stitches before he came to Vietnam, and he called it meatball surgery, and it basically was. It was like, you know, salvage what you can. But our biggest surgery was um, for the techs and the nurses who weren't circulating, you know, putting out the uh, sterile things or, or up working with the doctors was to cut away dead tissue that, um, in the limbs that had doesn't twitch, so you'd use Mayo scissors, heavy scissors, to cut that away. And then, when you got done, you would pack these wounds with sterile um, sterile sponges, which is just gauze, and they would be uh, soaked in normal saline, which is saline that is is to the same salinity as your blood is and then wrap them all in all kinds of bandages, and you take them off to the, the uh, ward afterward. And then we'd get them for revisions of that because they had to put the patient out. It was such a painful procedure, you know, and then we'd open up the, uh, open up the wounds again and look and see what was further damaged and do more of that. But the big stuff, the... Uh, the um, Burns that were horrendous, we would be debriding them, we would be cleaning them up and then sending them out to Japan, that sort of thing. There was a lot of that. Um, there was a lot of amputations, and we would start the amputation process, and it would be refined out of, out of country at one of our other, uh, one of our other hospitals. But so that was that hospital, and they closed that down because they were in quotes, Vietnamizing the war, which is an interesting term I thought I found. And um, they sent me to um, the 27th Surgical Hospital, which is also the smaller of two hospitals in one region. And uh, um, Sharon Lane, the nurse who was killed in the hospital uh, during a, an attack, was at the other hospital, like shortly before I came. To, to mine. And the problem there was morale because we got a lot of Vietnamese patients as opposed to the uh, GIs. And a lot of particularly the, uh, the guys were just, you know, well, I didn't come here to work on, and the word was gooks. And I thought, you know, this is terrible. I mean, we're here in this country causing a lot of this damage, and why would we not repair that? Why would we not try to do the, our best with this sort of thing? And it got to me after about three months. I just couldn't deal with it anymore because it wasn't busy enough, So, because the other one was busier. It wasn't a busy enough hospital to keep the uh, brass from making a salute again and making sure that our we had uh, creases in our fatigues, you know, and that sort of Mickey Mouse stuff. So I asked for a transfer, and my the head nurse, who was not a friend of mine, looked at me and said, you don't have to do that. And I said, well, yeah, I really, for my Saturday, I think I do need to. And she said, I'm going to send you to the worst hellhole in Vietnam. There won't be any beach there like you got here. There won't be, you know, these uh, these this leisure time that you get here. And I said, 
fine, you know. And she said, I'm sending you to a place where you'll work your ass off. So she did. She sent me to uh, Kuchi, and uh, <clears throat> that was my last assignment. That was seven months, because I extended a month so I could get out early, which was the most depressing month of my life. But it was a very busy hospital. It was uh, the 22nd, or the the 12th of back, and an evac works a little differently. They also send people out, but they keep you a little longer. And uh, we had an amazing team there. It's where I met my husband, who was the uh, registrar, which is kind of a paper pusher. And also he was in charge of various personnel on the uh, administrative end. Um, and he was a little too young to be doing that, but they happened to have a... Uh, have a, a job vacancy, and they put him in for temporary, and he did so well that they kept him in. But at any rate, <clears throat> yeah, there it was. It was a very busy thing. We did a lot of much more elaborate surgery. We might do the first couple refinements on a um, on a, a, an amputation. We had a plastic surgeon there. We had. Uh, ENT guy there. We had a much wider team. We had a dental surgeon. We had so we had folks who were actually doing a lot more refined things than we did at the other two. But it was very busy. And when uh, Nixon sent folks to Cambodia and invaded there to uh, supposedly clean up the supply lines, we got a lot of the. Um, the first casualties, and we weren't allowed to call them Cambodians, and we didn't officially know they were, but we knew they were not Vietnamese. So they were called something else, like out-of-country nationals or something like that. That's just a guess on my part. I don't think it's the term they used. And um, it was uh, it was an interesting, intense, extremely busy, busy, busy place. And I have to admit, I... Being kept busy like that kept my mind a lot freer from, you know, what it was that you know, that we were doing as opposed to, you know, and, and the morality of it as opposed to um, the actual mission. So it was, it was a good move for me that way. It did kind of restore what was left of my sanity at that point. Uh, so this is a, you've talked about this, um, World of men, right? Uh, the, the army. Um, what was it like being one of the very few women in that uh, situation? Uh, uh, difficult. You know, it sounds ideal when you're young. You know, I can go there and it's all men. Um, but I, I had kind of gone through that. The, the first part of my nursing school was up in South Bend, and we were we were a minority in a uh, in at that point an all male uh, Notre Dame. We were affiliated with St. Mary's. But St. Mary's was a small school, and there were women there, and, you know, most of ours, in fact, all of ours at that point, I think, all of our nursing students were women. So I had seen that in in miniature, but it was a whole different situation. But, uh, no, we were, God, we were, it was an unrealistic situation for us, because we were young, we were as hormone-ridden as everybody else was, but we were in a precarious picture because in a lot of the men's minds we were like their sisters or we were you know we were the 
that ideal, but it was mixed with being, because we were nurses, there was always that rumor out there that we were fast women because we had seen it all, you know, and that was, that was actually a trope of the 50s anyway, never mind the 60s, um, but, and that in civilian life, but, um, so we were also, you know, we were considered, we were the virgins, we were the whores, we were the, uh, um, saviors. It, it wasn't until much later when I was mentoring a guy who has since passed away and in, in writing a book about, not about his experiences there, but about his experiences as a kid. It's on my website. It's a very good book. It's very entertaining, and it's, it's lots of little short stories strung together. But at any rate, um, this guy had been a librarian, so he collected all kinds of material when he was there working as a clerk, and this was before I went. It was like two years before we were sent. And um, when he told me that he'd sent his collection of stuff to, um, to Texas, you know, to the archives there, um, he said, what do you think I ought to do about the porn, though? And I said, the porn? Because, you know, I, I was a nurse. I hadn't seen porn when I was over there. It wasn't my, my purview, obviously. And he said, yeah, yeah, the nursing porn. And I said, the nursing porn? And he said, you know, I could send you a couple of these. They're pretty weird, but I could send you a couple of these if you want to see what, you know, this was. And I said, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> you know, put it on in a plain brown wrapper and send it to me. <laughs> And he said, and, and then, you know, tell me what you think about sending that to uh, to Texas. So in the mail, I got these uh, couple of, looked like comic books, pretty decently drawn, that were all about nurses as the object of the porn. But it was so weirdly, you know, geared to the war in that we were depicted not only as Obviously, you know, we, you'd go to bed with everybody, you know, or not even bed. It'd be behind the, uh, behind the hospital or whatever. But you generally did it for a lofty purpose. And in one, the, uh, the whole thing was about the hospital had run out of morphine, which, of course, you had to have over there because, you know, you had to have it. And um, so this nurse knew of a supply line, but in order to do it, she'd have to, um, you know, kind of offer herself to the people in charge, and she did. And it depicted all this stuff, and here she came back, the hero, with, with morphine. And I thought, that is so, so, you know, true to what our position is over there. Here she is. She's far more well-endowed than anybody I ever met over there. And she's, you know, physically beautiful, and she's, you know, obviously ready, obviously very slutty, you know, in, in the terms of the, the day, and uh, yet tremendously noble. And <laughs> it's nuts. So, yeah, we were, in a, we were in a strange position. And, you know, to tell you the truth, when I got back, it took me a while, but I ended up connecting around the time I published I was ready to connect with other people there, and I found one of those listservs in that day. You know, they kind of precursors to the uh, social, you know, stuff that we have now online. 
And it was Vietnam nurses. You had to basically prove that you'd been there, um, you know, to the the person in charge. And um, and it was amazing the number of people I met on that line who were, oh, thoroughly PTSD cases. Um, a woman that I had had known and been close to in uh, in my basic training who termed herself the Wolverine, who has since passed away, unfortunately, um, was helping people through the process of of trying to get the VA to look at women and our service over there and the possibility of PTSD and some of the reason that uh, some of the people who were there, their PTSD stemmed from having been raped over there. And uh, it was, I remember one woman who lived near me and I, I took her to lunch and she had recently um, gone into a PTSD thing, which she had not before. She had, she had carefully put everything, you know, there's a reason it's post-traumatic, but she told me that she had been gang raped and that she went to her, by GIs, she went to her hospital administrator the day that it happened, and she was, you know, a bloody mess, and he said, you know, basically what happened to, to you, and she said, you know, can you do something about this? I was gang raped, and he looked at her, and he said, well, I can stop the war, but you knew what you were getting into when you came over here, so you got to decide, you know, do you want me to stop the war in order for you to do that in terms of, and, and you know, let them investigate that, which will probably come to nothing? And so she just kind of crammed it away until she actually had some kind of an incident where someone she knew had suffered the same, uh, you know, a similar trauma, and it it tripped the wire. So um, it's since been learned that our PTSD is is a, a different nature, not just that sort of thing, but also that we were exposed daily to the effects of the war, but it wasn't that we were you know, we were certainly not on the firing end, nor on the firing line. We were just witness constantly, and the trauma of that is tremendous. And I think, truthfully, in my own case, that one reason I've been able to not go through that is because the operating room is kind of like a it's it's a body shop, and I didn't get to know these guys personally. If I had, I I cannot imagine how it would have been. Between that and the fact that I could beat the devil out of my guitar when I was there and sit out on the uh, out on the uh, helipad where nobody would hear me and just sing at the top of my lungs and cry when I had to, I think I was kind of saved. Uh, also, I went in kind of angry about the whole thing and I left more angry about it. So, yeah. But uh, but for a woman, it was it was a very tough line to walk in so many ways, so many ways. You're listening to Access Utah. That's my interview recorded, a portion of my interview recorded yesterday with Susan O'Neill. Uh, she's a uh, Vietnam vet. Uh, she served uh, as a nurse in Vietnam, a, a tour starting in uh, May of 1969. Uh, she's the author of a collection of short stories set in Vietnam during the war. It's called Don't Mean Nothing. That's out and available. You can find Susan O'Neill at susanoneal.us. 
Um, and uh, just a note that we will have up on our website, upr.org, along with this episode, my full interview with Susan O'Neill, uh, recorded about an hour with her. We'll talk about dealing with her anger. She comes home, coming home and protesting the war and the, the meaning of uh, patriotism, many other subjects. So that'll be up as well. We'll also have a link to my interview from last year or so with the, the author T. Bui, who's also a presenter. Um, just a, a note, um, the uh, Tanner Symposium, Women and America's Vietnam War, is happening on Friday at the Eccles Conference Center on the OSU campus in Logan. All are welcome. Uh, there will be an uh, option to attend in person or remotely, but you need to register in advance. We'll have the link to do that on our website, upr.org. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The creation of Carbon County in 1894 resulted from a rift between Mormon agriculturalists and non-Mormon miners and illustrates the struggle over identity in rural Utah. Find out more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. The discovery of industrial-grade coal in 1882 at Castlegate in Price Canyon brought investment and workers from outside Utah into Emory County. With this influx of miners from Latin America, Europe, and Asia, the small community of Helper at the base of the canyon became the most ethnically diverse community in Utah at the time. Coal mining arrived not long after the first Mormon families immigrated to the area in 1878. But the culture of mining towns was markedly different from the agricultural communities already settled in the southern end of the county. For the Mormon settlers of the Price Valley, farming was a way to create a permanent community made up of families. By contrast, mining attracted a different demographic, young, single, immigrant men, many of whom were Catholic. Mining companies, always afraid of labor organizing, tended to hire a constant influx of new workers. Regular turnover in mining jobs kept workers from assimilating into the predominant Mormon culture. Helper, along with the nearby town of Price, was infamous for saloons and brothels, places where young men could spend some money in their leisure time. While these towns were also home to many families, businesses, and churches, the agricultural towns farther south saw only the unsavory social corruption of extractive industry. The mining towns, for their part, felt the county government in Castledale ignored their interests. The solution to the growing dilemma came with new county boundaries in 1894. Carbon County was born, named for the primary element in its major industry, coal, and Emory County was officially separated into two entities. While the solution was unusual, the question of whether economic development should be agrarian or industrial was one that resonated throughout the state. Through the redrawing of political boundaries, these disparate communities of Carbon and Emory counties developed on their own terms, rather than having to fully reconcile their differences.
Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.